Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This show is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Check us out at connorsforum.org. At the top of the show today, I want to share with you that the Connors Forum is now partnering with Shippensburg University, where I teach. Shippensburg is a really wonderful institution of research and learning. I love this place, and I'm really excited to see what this partnership produces moving forward. Before we get to today's show, if you haven't done so already, Please click on the show description in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever it is you're listening to this podcast, and take 15 seconds to subscribe to the Connors newsletter. It's free, and in addition to getting the podcast in your email, you'll get lots of useful information sent straight to you each week. All right, well, today we welcome Mona Charon back to the show. Mona is a nationally syndicated columnist. She's the policy editor at the right-leaning The Bulwark, and she hosts The Bulwark's Beg to Differ podcast, which is an excellent podcast. I listen to it at the gym, on the treadmill. I listen to it in my car going to work. It's great. Uh, In the show description, we've included some links to Mona's writing and to her podcast, so be sure to check that out. Mona comes on the show today to give us a conservative's perspective on gun violence, on the January 6th hearings, poverty, and much more. She's an incredibly thoughtful commentator, and I always come away from these conversations better for having had them, and I think you'll enjoy hearing from her as well. So I can't wait to talk to Mona Charon coming up next. Sharon, welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Mona, I love having you on the program. I don't personally consider myself a liberal or a conservative, but I like to hear from people who are thoughtful on both sides of the aisle, as long as they're reasonable, they're discussing issues in good faith, and they're committed to dealing in only facts. And you certainly meet all those standards. So before we get to anything else... I think we need to start with the recent mass shootings. These are just horrific events, and they forced all of us, I think, to deal with the fact that addressing this is going to require more than the ideology of one side or another. If you look at the taken-for-granted dogmas on the left, the taken-for-granted dogmas on the right, I don't think either one can actually solve this problem by itself. It seems like it's going to require a variety of ideas, some conservative, some liberal, to fix this problem. As a longtime conservative commentator yourself, have your views on guns and gun control changed over time? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about that journey? As somebody, I, I, I was always a bit of a dissenter within conservatism when it came to guns. Uh, first of all, I just, um, I I did not understand the sort of worship of guns and the, you know, valorization of guns, which I found on the right. 
Um, I, I was much more sympathetic to the argument that in certain situations, it's a great equalizer. If you're a mom, you know, a single mom and, you know, living by yourself with kids and, uh, you know, you're helpless against a lot of bad guys. And, um, whereas when you have a gun, the, the, uh, odds are equaled up. Um, and so I was, I was, um, but, but I was always wary, um, of arguments that, um, even though I, I suppose you could probably go back through my oeuvre and find uh, examples of me um, dismissing the idea of gun control as impossible. Um, I think I probably wrote that at some point. I was big on the um, mental health focus many years ago, decades ago. Um, but as with so many things that I see sort of corrupted and twisted on the right, the point of a mental health focus is not to hide behind it and say, you know, because because the problem is our is our you know young people or just in general Americans poor mental health that that we shouldn't focus on possible gun control measures, which is what I see conservative Republicans doing now. Um, my point when I wrote about mental health was that. Over you know, starting in the 1970s and moving uh, since then, we adopted a lot of laws in America that were designed to um, give more rights to people who were mentally ill, so that you could not put people in you know in involuntarily commit them, for example, to a mental institution because there were a lot of abuses. And um, it was necessary to reform, but my point was, yes, it was necessary to reform, but we went way too far to the point where now, you know, even if, um, you know, the parent of a, you know, of a, of a kid who's 18, you know, uh, and therefore an adult, you know, even if they contact the police, contact, you know, the local hospital, whatever, and say, this person really is dangerous and should not be given a weapon, should not get access to a weapon, it's, you, you can't do it except, you know, there are states now that have adopted red flag laws that seek to, um, to address that problem. But in any event, that was my point was that um, we really needed to focus on being able <clears throat> to keep guns out of the hands of really dangerous people, at least temporarily, right? We're, we're not talking about like forbidding them from ever owning a gun in their whole lives or, you know, depriving them of their, of their second amendment rights without due process, but just that, that there was a, there was a, a pendulum swing that had gone too far in the direction of um, libertarianism regarding, regarding gun rights. Um, but, you know, I, um, also, I would say in the past few years have come to think that, um, uh, that, so for example, I, you may have read this piece that I did, but when you look at the mass shootings, this is separate and apart from most gun deaths in America, which as everybody knows, most of them are either suicides or, or homicides with one victim. Um, so that's the overwhelming majority of gun violence. But the thing that is, um, and that's a problem, but honestly, the thing that is, that is tearing us apart and making us feel like our society is sort of rocking on its foundations are these mass shootings, these, you know, unbelievable, you know, especially when it involves children, but it involves anyone. And I, I went through the list as the New York Times did also and others AP 
And you look at the mass shooters since 2012, and in almost every case, these people were able to walk into a gun store and purchase huge amounts of weaponry and ammunition without so much as a you know blink or a fairly well from uh, the gun shop. And you know people say, well, there are so many guns in circulation, which is true. The estimates are there are some close to 400 million guns in this country. But I think there's a huge difference between guns in private hands. You know, somebody might have 16 guns in their, in their house. That doesn't mean that that sort of partly, you know, deranged or evil or whatever young man who wants to do damage is going to be able to lay hands on them easily, you know? And, and so I do think that, um, <laughs> that the onion got it right where they said, you know, there's nothing we can do, says a country where the only country where this repeatedly happens, you know. So give us a quick hitter list of some things that you think are reasonable that we could implement now. I'm not saying things that politically we can get done. Obviously, our Congress is dysfunctional, but a quick hitter list of things that are reasonable. Most people support. Yeah, um, certainly waiting periods, um, uh, red flag laws so that uh, p- Family members can alert authorities when their, you know, relative is showing uh, signs of violence or or mental instability. Um, background checks. Background checks. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, and of course, you need background checks. It's funny because you know people say, um, "Well, we need to focus on mental health," but unless you're willing to deny gun ownership at least temporarily to people who come up on your red flag. Um, then doing focusing on mental health isn't gonna isn't gonna change anything. So it has to be uh, those two things combined. And uh, you know, yeah, the uh, the um, there is a price to be paid. There are certain people who probably um, will have um, guns denied to them wrongly. But compared with the price we're paying now for this, anybody can get a gun for any reason, and and all that ammunition and. Uh, what about the what about the body armor? I mean, maybe we should think about making that you know regulating that because when someone shows up um, at a school or a movie theater or whatever wearing body armor and with a high powered rifle, he's outgunning the police, and uh, you know so that is 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 a concern. Also. Yeah, in Buffalo, the good guy with a gun <laughs> shot the shooter, shot the shooter. Yeah, but he had body armor. And so he killed the good guy with the gun, right? Exactly. And went about with his massacre. You know, exactly. uh, I, I'm I'm so tired of the straw men arguments around mm-hmm. this. I and I said this recently on the most recent pod. I don't care whose ideas are better. I don't care what mix. I don't care if it's ninety percent Republican, eighty percent Democrat. I don't care. I want less carnage. Yep. And I had this conversation with Jim Swift privately, not on the air, but privately recently. We were talking about this and I said, and, and, and actually he said this, and then I, I firmly agree, which is the straw man argument that this wouldn't get rid of all violence. Right. It, is, it, is a 10% reduction worth it? 
Yeah. Is a 20% reduction worth it, right? I mean, that's what we're right. talking about here is reducing right. these mass shootings. Exactly. And the fact is, you know, the Second Amendment right, it's not absolute. No right is absolute. The First Amendment is not absolute either. You can't threaten people. You can incite a riot. But, you know, there are things you cannot do with any right. And um, we, you know, we have to balance the good versus the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, diminution of a right and what good we are achieving. Well, I could talk to you about this topic for the whole show, and it's a really important topic, but we'll move on because I only have you for a little bit here. I want to talk to you about something else, and that's about American culture. There are all sorts of issues with our culture that we could discuss. Tom Nichols often says that we are a deeply unserious people at the moment, and I certainly agree with that. But I want to talk to you about something else, and that's an erosion of decency. The amount of crassness, of vulgarity, of obscenity that I see out in the open on a daily basis that my children see really troubles me. I know that oppositional bumper stickers are nothing new, you know, political bumper stickers, but, you know, giant bumper stickers and yard signs and, you know, yard flags with the F word on them about whichever politician or political party you happen to hate. And it isn't just Republicans, it isn't just Democrats, it's people of all political stripes. The way that we talk in public spaces, the way we treat each other, the way we express ourselves. You know, I've been meaning to ask you about this, this erosion of decency or or seeming erosion of decency in our culture and your thoughts on it. Oh my gosh. And it happens so fast. Um, (coughs) I'm sorry. COVID cough. Um, yeah, Mona has COVID and she's, despite that, um, she's doing this uh, interview, which is pretty awesome. So thank you, Mona. Thank you. Oh, my, yeah, my pleasure. Um, sorry about the coughing. Yeah, um, yeah it's okay. So, um, you know, I, I will tell you a little story. So maybe 15 years ago, I was um, outside the hair salon where I used to get my hair done. I was there for a haircut. And there was a guy in the parking lot shouting the F word at somebody else. And I spoke to him and I said, please don't use that kind of language in public. It's offensive. And he, you know, he looked around and, and, you know, he said, oh, you know what, but he didn't, he wasn't aggressive. He kind of seemed maybe a little bit cowed, maybe, but in any event, I would never do that now because it's everywhere. It's suddenly you know, hopeless. I mean, that little tiny gesture that I made for like a little tiny bit of public decency. And part of it is I have to assume it's social media, it's the internet, which has just created this cesspool that then leaks into real life. And I mean, I remember finding out that um, people were chanting, let's go Brandon, which, you know, is the cleaned up version of, you know, you know what it is. Um, In church. But in churches, in, in, in high school football games, you know, I mean, oh my God, what are these people thinking? The, the, the complete and utter abandonment of any standards of civility or decency is just appalling. And, um, and I see it from people of all political stripes. I mean, it just so happens that Biden's president right now. And so you see a lot of that directed towards him, but If I'm in a public space with people who are Democrats, people who are Republicans, I still see this erosion of decency regardless of who it is. And 
uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to continue and get worse. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, um, and I, I wonder whether people stop to reflect on what you lose when you allow that kind of vulgarity to become sort of the lingua franca, because it, you know, there are actual studies that show that for certain people, and I, I'm certainly in this category, when they hear that kind of language in public, um, their blood pressure goes up. Um, they feel unsafe. Um, they are alienated from their fellow citizens because it's an act. It's a verbal act, but it is a, a, an act of aggression at this, you know, and, and so I, I really, you know, I, I, I hate it. And, um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I keep thinking that we'll get to a point where people will agree that, you know, we need to, 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 to find, get more in touch with the better angels of our nature. But so far that has not happened. Yeah, I hope so. Hope so. All right. Well, let's move on. So the weight of the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that Joe Biden won the last election and he is the legitimate president. Former President Trump began sowing seeds of doubt in our electoral system long before the 2020 election so that he could condition people to believe his false claims about the election if he were to lose and allow himself to undermine our democratic system. You've said this coup is ongoing and the real steal is coming. Presumably, you mean that uh, Trump's efforts to undermine our democracy could actually succeed next time. Explain to us this threat and if we're doing anything about it, like fixing the Electoral Count Act. So it's a couple of things. First of all, um, the Electoral Count Act is, is, as people may know, it's a 19th century law that was passed to sort of solve a problem of the 1876 election that was, anyway, if you read this piece of legislation, it's one of the worst drafted laws I've ever seen. It has run-on sentences that go on for pages, no punctuation, really amazing. <laughs> um, and it's very unclear um, what the responsibilities of the states are, how much power Congress has to reject slates from the states, slates of electors, um, and so forth. So it's, it's, an, it's a recipe for mischief, and we've already seen that some people are, are eager to exploit that. So that could happen. So you could have a, uh, so one of the things this law says is in the event of a failed election, the Congress can substitute its judgment about the number of electors. Well, what's a failed election? The law doesn't say. So it needs desperately to be reformed. You can imagine a situation in which, you know, because right now we, if all things go as we expect they will, the Republicans are going to take the House and the Senate this year. Um, and, uh, and they will be, they will be in charge. And you could imagine that the Congress, I mean, the president will still be the Democrat, but you could imagine the Congress, you know, voting not to accept the slate of delegates from a state that went, you know, let's say for the Democrats. So, um, it could, it just could add so much uncertainty and, and stress into the system. It was pretty bad in 2020, it could be even worse in 2024. And why do I say that? Because when this is what I mean, when I say the coup is still ongoing, if you look at the local level, 
And the number of people who are running for offices like Secretary of State and other, you know, uh, other positions in, in the states, the number of people who are election deniers from 2020 is alarming. And, uh, and if they are in positions of power, you know, they having convinced themselves that the election was stolen from them in 2020, they may be ready for what they perceive to be payback, which of course it wouldn't be. Uh, it's completely upside down. They're the ones who tried to steal the election. Isn't that in 2020. crazy? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's the risk. And so I would, you know, I've written urging Democrats to pay attention to these secretary of state races and these other races at the local level. Um, and, um, and to, and, and I don't, I mean, I have heard, I've t- asked a lot of people, I have heard that there's talk of reforming the Electoral Count Act in the, um, in the lame duck session. I have no idea why they're waiting. Um, because things can change. And right now I've gathered that they have enough Republican votes that this thing could pass. I don't know. So the Democrats have, um, have taken their eye off the ball. They have gone back to, you alluded to this, you know, like, you know, all kinds of wish list items that they have about voting that are, you know, in my opinion, don't address the crisis that we're facing. Right. Maybe important, right? Mm-hmm. But a, a, as a priority, this is issue. Well, I don't one. even think they're important, but that's right. another I mean, matter. sure. Yeah. But you, and you've said yourself, yeah. you're a single issue voter at this point, right? Yes. Which is, let's keep the republic going. Yes. Then we can discuss all these other issues. Yes. <laughs> right? Com- completely. But Democrats have not acted like that. They have, yes. uh, you know, they have not taken the attitude that the most important thing is to preserve the democratic system and uh, and the legitimacy of elections, which is key to everything. You know, I can't remember. I, I don't know if it was Cook or somebody else over at the National Review, uh, but he he wrote a piece basically saying that because the Democrats aren't taking uh, the threats of democracy seriously, I'm not going to take it seriously. And I, I can sit here as somebody who's not a Democrat and say our democracy is under serious threat. And I don't care if the Democrats are taking it seriously or not. I don't think they are. That doesn't mean it's not under threat. It is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not an excuse. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, um, like this is a get out of jail free card. You know, well, the Democrats are screwing this up so I can screw it up too. That's nuts. I mean, and it's very irresponsible. Um and um, and it allows partisanship and polarization to trump everything. Um, you know, it, if if the Democrats are, you know, I mean, it it just uh, if the Democrats are are for something, then I I'm against it. And if the Democrats are not doing what they should do, then I don't have to. I don't know. It's just uh, it's very sad. I would I would make my appeal to our to our conservative listeners who maybe think this is a democratic issue. I promise you when people are mad, when there is this kind of negative uh, partisanship where you just kind of hate the other side more than you love your own side, I promise you someday it can be the Democrats who pretend like an election is stolen. Absolutely and, right. And if you can just put yourself in those shoes, I promise Absolutely you. Absolutely right. Actually, you don't even have to look that far. I mean, Stacey Abrams exactly. refused to concede in 2018, which was just terrible. So, you want to be scared. Imagine that kind of sentiment gaining 70% support 
among the democratic base. But right. Let's move on. All right. So, um, what do you think is reasonable for us to expect on this issue for the January 6th committee to actually achieve? I would like to say that, <laughs> you know, these hearings and especially the fact that they're at least two of them are scheduled for prime time will shake something loose in the electorate and make people say, Oh my God, you know, it really was worse than I realized. But unfortunately, um, the the epistemic closure <laughs> that we have created for ourselves where people just are not available for evidence that contradicts their tribe uh, is so strong now that I wonder um, now there are always people in the middle um, or there are always people who are loosely uh, affiliated with one side or the other who might be shaken loose. Um, so I wouldn't rule that out, but I, I have a feeling that we're going to watch people like me are going to watch these hearings and we are going to be in despair and horror that this is America and other people are going to shrug it off and they're going to say, Oh, you know, it's a partisan witch hunt by the Democrats. And there we are. Well, let's hope it makes a difference for the sake of our democracy. All right, let's move on. So if you click on the show description for this episode and go check out the Connors newsletter, you'll see a piece that I wrote with a colleague of mine this past week about U.S. poverty in 2021, possibly hitting a historic low. Mona is a Connors Forum affiliated scholar and is quoted in this piece. And so I want to talk to you about it, Mona. I would encourage all of you to go read it. It's full of great figures and tables and all sorts of great info. But here's the main point of the piece. In any given year, our traditional government programs, things like the Earned Income Tax Credit and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, what people sometimes call food stamps, unemployment insurance, SSI, a variety of other programs, they substantially reduce the poverty rate in the U.S. The Urban Institute estimates that these standard programs reduced poverty last year from 23.1% to 12.6%. And that's pretty typical for the U.S., a pretty typical reduction, pretty typical poverty rate. But these estimates showed that pandemic programs like the stimulus checks, the child tax credits, reduced poverty further to 7.7%, which would be a historic low by a significant margin. As I've said, I'm not a conservative or a liberal, so I don't have an ideological commitment one way or another to how we should reduce poverty. That's up to voters and their elected representatives. But since government programs are typically seen as a liberal method for reducing poverty, I thought I'd reach out to a conservative for an opposing view. I reached out to Mona, and to my surprise, she supported the permanent implementation of something resembling these programs, like maybe something like a family allowance. So talk to us about your thoughts on this reduction in poverty, Mona, and the possible continuation of some of these programs. Yeah. So I have been, um, I've been banging a drum for many years about the importance of family structure in alleviating poverty or even preventing poverty. And I believe very strongly that we should be doing more to encourage marriage and people being faithful to one another. And I can give you chapter and verse about how we have in America, the most unstable families of anybody in the advanced industrial world. Um, you know, people always point to Scandinavia and say, oh, well, their marriage rates are also, you know, not that high. But the fact is, 
they do stay together, even though they're not married, they stay together and they raise their kids. So anyway, that's something that I feel very strongly about. But at the same time, um, I have been very influenced by uh, work that's been done by the Niskanen Center about um, efforts to alleviate poverty. And, and Mitt Romney apparently was also very influenced by them and, and pr- produced a proposal for a child allowance that does something that really speaks to me. Because one of the things that is very, something that I have tried to focus on over many years of my career is the unbelievable kludginess of the American bureaucracy. Like uh, Stephen Tellis, you know, I think uh, coined that term, the kludge, you know, like there's just too many steps. It's too complicated. You mentioned part of it, you know, we've got EITF and we've got, um, we've got WIC and we have TANF and we have all of these different programs that sometimes overlap and often are only available to people who, um, you know, can jump through all these bureaucratic hoops to get it. And meanwhile, they've got little kids, they're facing, you know, a, 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 a tough situation. I think it's far better to clear away all the underbrush, just give people a check every month when they have little kids. I mean, we're spending this money anyway. Right. So just clean it up. Give people money so that children are not growing up in poverty. It's not going to solve everything. We're not going to, we're not going to, you know, make the kid who's growing up with a single mother in a barrio somewhere, you know, going to have the same opportunities as a child who, you know, has two parents and, and, you know, a a higher income. Obviously not, but we are going to be able to alleviate some of that severe poverty, which has become feminized over the last several generations. And that is a good in and of itself. Poverty is not good for children. And um, so I, I do think that we can do this. We should do this. It's something that a wealthy society should do. And, you know, I, I have also been influenced that, you know, it doesn't I don't think it's going to encourage or, you know, uh, or, or subsidize unwed parenting because I think that ship has sailed. And, um, and so I, I'm not any longer thinking, well, we don't want to, we don't want to subsidize behavior that we know is, is not ideal mm-hmm. for kids. Cause I just don't think that it has that much of an impact. Mona Charon, always great talking to you. I could talk to you forever, uh, but I'll let you go. Feel better. And thanks Thank for coming you. on the show today. Thanks, Lawrence. I, I always enjoy talking to you as well. You're a reasonable human. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, Mona. That's why we love having you on the show. We love reading your writing, listening to your podcast. Click on the show description before you go. Check out Mona's writing over at The Bulwark. Check out her podcast, Beg to Differ. Check out the Connors newsletter. Uh, And I should have mentioned at the top of the show, of course, that even though we're partnering with Shippensburg University, we are an independent entity. And so the views expressed here, of course, those of myself and of Mona and not of the university. But anyhow, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you, keep smiling until then, who cares about the clouds when we're together?
Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet Take a liking to you.